All right. Well, you can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. How many thought I might not have a Christmas message today? We did one Sunday, but we're just a few days before the celebration uh, on the 25th. And the, the name of this message is called The First Christmas Song. The First Christmas Song. And you can, can any of you think about what the first Christmas song might have been? <laughs> Lori's shaking her head up and down. I think she's got the answer. Uh, I love Christmas music. I mean, even before I knew Jesus, I knew there was something special about Christmas music. It was just like, the songs were different, you know. They were like different than anything else I had heard. Even when I got into the hard, hard rock scene and stuff like that, I was kind of always tripped out on Christmas music. Like, what? why is there such a feeling about it? Then when I became a Christian and understood the reason for the season, uh, because it's about Jesus and about what he's done for us and his great love, uh, then all of a sudden those songs became not just beautiful, but became incredibly deep, and the lyrics became incredibly beautiful. And I still, you know, I get teared up. I, 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 sometimes I read about Christmas lyrics and just, I look through the theology in Christmas songs. I was looking at the theology uh, to, earlier today and just Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That song is just like full of deep, beautiful, rich theology. And so many of the Christmas songs are. Well, I wanted to look at the first Christmas song. The first Christmas song, that's in Luke chapter 1. It's called the, by many the Magnificat because it is actually incredibly magnificent. And I don't have time to give too much of the background. We talked about uh, some of that Sunday and the Christmas message and a lot of you know the background and the stories and so forth. But just know at least this much is that Mary has you know, revealed to uh, Elizabeth, it's been revealed to Elizabeth that she has uh, been as a virgin who has not yet been with Joseph is, has become the one that was chosen to bear the Messiah. And Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it talks about how a virgin shall be found with a child, right? She'll conceive a child. Amen? And it's amazing. Uh, and that prophecy is quite interesting because the Greek Septuagint, Parthenos, the Greek word translated there, is, was exclusively used of virgins. However, Alma, the Hebrew word, was typically used of virgins, but it could mean simply maiden as well. But when it was spoke of a uh, maiden, like our word maiden, doesn't have to be a virgin, but you typically think of a virgin, a maiden's a virgin. Uh, so it's interesting when you look at that and that that was a sign. And it would be a sign, I should say, that the Messiah would come. Of course, there's a lot deeper meaning there, and I thought about going through that passage. It was one of the things that was on my uh, little list as far as of, of Christmas possibility messages. And it's a beautiful passage, and Isaiah himself becomes a typology of that whole scenario whereby Mary will be, or somebody in the future, which be, you know, hundreds, 700 years in the future, uh, a virgin, which is kind of interesting because the Greek Septuagint, what the Greeks were using, had Parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin, would be found with child. And of course, he's born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. The Jews understood that he'd be born in Bethlehem and so forth. And she is rejoicing and she shares this with Elizabeth. And when she shares it with Elizabeth, the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And showing you, by the way, that not only uh, was John the Baptist, who was in Elizabeth's womb, who also, she actually shouldn't have gotten pregnant because she was far too old, past the uh, age of bearing children. She was pregnant and there's a whole story behind that with her husband and, you know, 
him losing his speech and everything else because of his unbelief and all the stuff the Lord did there. But uh, John the Baptist had leapt in her womb. He was about six months old in the womb, rejoicing that Jesus had come into the world, showing you that whether a baby is six months in the womb or they've just been conceived, that God reveals to us that they are children already. Amen? Amen. And we could go off on that and do a whole message against abortion, but that's not what I'm about tonight. But I have to get that shot in. Amen? Have to get that in anyway. So that's important to keep in mind. Now, when we look at the Magnificat, we pick it up at Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. That's her inner person, inner emotions, and who she is. Exalts the Lord. Now this gal, Mary, keep in mind, she's chosen. She's not, God just didn't tap a gal, you know, on the shoulder and said, I'm going to pick you. Boom. This was a gal that was very deep, uh, very humble before the Lord, thought a lot about the Lord. You know, you don't have to have a, a, the biggest brain in the world to be a deep person. It doesn't matter the size of your brain. It matters where your heart's at. And if you ponder, and we read it more than once, Mary pondering the things of the Lord, you know, she pondered them. She was in the Scripture. She knew the Scripture. And she knew the promises of Scripture. That's why this didn't shock her. And then the Scripture just pours out of her. And I believe she's not only got Jesus in her, but the Holy Spirit is with her. She's literally Emmanuel, God with us, right? And what pours out of her is quite amazing. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. And by the way, the Lord chose her because like Moses, he was the humblest guy on the earth. She was an incredibly humble woman. And he chose her to, you want to be used by the Lord? Humble yourself, man. Give God the glory. And what does the Magnificat start with? She gives praise to God. She doesn't say it's all about me and look what I've done and I'm the most special person on the earth. No, she says... My soul exalts the Lord. And praise God, you know, it's great if you can do things uh, for the Lord and use the gifts the Lord's given you and uh, do wonderful things. That's, that's important. But you want to make sure, first and foremost, you give glory to God. And she exalts the Lord. Okay? And, you know, I've emphasized a lot of the Lord's Prayer through the years. And it starts off with what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? And... By hallowing, some people think we're somehow making God's name holy. He is already holy. Amen? But when we're saying, hallowed be thy name, we're saying, may I show your name to be holy by my words, by my actions, by my, the spirit, my countenance, who I am. May I show how you are holy. And that's what she's doing. She wants the, the Lord to be exalted, wants the Lord to be magnified. In fact, the, the Greek literally says, a transliteration of the Greek literally would say, my soul makes great the Lord. My soul makes great the Lord. Well, the Lord's already great, but she's saying my soul is showing his greatness. And she does that. That's a great way to start off the Magnificat. Uh, she's magnifying the Lord. In fact, the English Standard Version says my soul magnifies the Lord. And that's what we do. And how do you magnify the Lord? Praise and worship is a wonderful way to do that. How many of you, when, you get, when you're singing praise and worship songs or you're listening to great praise and worship songs, the, the Lord's magnified in your consciousness? Right? You become more aware of his grandeur, more aware of his beauty, his holiness, his power. Amen? And that's what she's doing. She's beginning to praise the Lord. She's magnifying the Lord. It's important that we do that and that we praise him with our mouths, that we sing praises to him, that we pray to him. These are our ways that we magnify the Lord. And it's in interesting because what does, it, what does it mean to magnify? What does a magnifying glass do besides kill little bugs when you're a kid? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I was one of those bad kids that needed Jesus bad. What's that? 
it focuses and make, gives you a clearer picture, makes them, enlarges the, 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 the reality of what you're looking at. Uh, and that's interesting because when we worship the Lord and we praise Him and we focus on Him, we see His bigness. Now, it's a different than a microscope. A microscope takes something that's small and makes it look what? Big. Okay? That's a magnifying glass does the same thing. But a mi microscope is far different than a telescope, right? So a, a microscope will take that which is really, really small, you know, like a bacteria or something, and just blow it up, make it look really big. And that's what kind of Hollywood is like. Hollywood and, you know, it, it, it magnifies or it, it takes a microscope on the, the celebrities and takes little people. They're very little compared to the Lord. Amen? Amen. The Creator. And it makes them far bigger than they really are. And eventually, but they don't want you to see the true reality. So there's a lot of makeup involved and costumes and, and, and imagery and all that stuff, right? Social media and that got people managing it to make them look a certain way. In fact, when you get too close, you start to see like through the Me Too movement lens, ooh, you don't want to see too much of, the, of Hollywood, right? It's actually pretty ugly. Well, what, what we do when we, we, when we magnify the Lord, we don't make someone small look bigger so we see them. It's more like a telescope, right? What does a telescope do? Did anybody see the full moon lately? I mean, I don't know if it's still there tonight, but it was there a few days ago, and I was just like, whew, I called my wife up. It was still light out. That's how beautiful and radiant it was. It was still light out maybe an hour before sunset. I said, you've got to check out the moon. You know, it's so beautiful, you know. I think that was uh, a few days ago. And what a telescope does, it takes what you see that looks smaller than it really is and shows you the reality of it more, right? And the Lord God, he fills the heavens and the earth. And it says the heaven and heavens can't contain him. That's how big he is. So basically, when you begin to praise him, and you begin to look at him through the lenses of his word, it's like putting a telescope on him. And you get to see his greatness and his bigness and glimpses of him. Remember when we were in Isaiah chapter 6, and their declaration was going forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Remember that? Yes, sir. And who are they praising? According to the Gospel of John, it says Isaiah said this. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Gospel of John John states by the power of the Holy Spirit that Isaiah said this or saw this when he saw the Lord's glory, when he saw Jesus' glory. The context is talking about Jesus right there, right? And it's actually quoting the saying just right after that in the same narrative, showing you that Jesus is the one that was on the throne. He says when, when Isaiah said this, and it's like, you know, he quotes Isaiah there, but it's from that whole scene right there. And that when you get in the Word, you see greater glimpses of the Lord. Amen? And guess what? When you see how big the Lord is, it helps you recognize you need to be humble before Him. Amen? And another thing, too, that's quite interesting is when you magnify the Lord, you not only see Him in a bigger way, but you start to fall in love with Him more. Paul's prayer to the, for the church of Ephesus was, in chapter 3, verse 18 through 20, uh, was that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. So they might comprehend with their hearts how big God is, right? How big the Father's love is for us in Christ Jesus, amen? Do you realize how much he loves you? 
And you realize that that's what we ought to be focusing on? God so loved the world that he gave his love to God, son that he loved us. Paul said he loved me and gave himself for me. Mary's going to say something in the Magnificat a little bit later as we continue to read something very personal that's pretty heavy. But it's really amazing when you think about it because she's praising God and she's like, you know, wow. But here Paul's praying that we might put a telescope on God, that our eyes might become lenses that understand the height, the depth, and the width and the length of, God, of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Amen? And then how do you do that, man? You can look at creation and get an understanding of how powerful he is. But it's not until you get in the word and God's revelation to us. He speaks to us through uh, his uh, natural creation, right? Which I believe is supernaturally created. So it's actually, we call that general revelation. But I believe it's still supernatural revelation because it's created by God, you know? But he also speaks us through special revelation of his word and through his son. And how do we understand the height, depth, width, and length of God's love for us in Christ Jesus? How high is God's love for us? The Bible says in Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are from the what? From the earth. Amen. How deep is it? Well, he left heaven and came to earth. And it says in Ephesians chapter 4, he even went to the lowest part, lower parts of the earth. Amen. How about width and breadth, you know? God so loved the world. Amen. As far as the east is from the west, so have I cast, right, our sins from, away from us. Amen. This is amazing, amazing love. And that way we get a better depth, a better understanding. Now, what's heavy about that, about this, is what we tend to do when we get our eyes off the Lord. How many of you do this? I know I've done it. When we start getting focused on everything we've got to get done and we're doing, especially this time of year, you've got to be very careful. Your problems actually get bigger than they are. You begin to magnify your problems and they blow up. But the cool thing is, if you put your focus on the Lord, amen, your problems will shrink down to the size they really are. In fact, they'll get even smaller than they are presently because if they're in the Lord's hands, they're nothing. Amen? That's why I love the very next verse that I didn't quote in Ephesians 3, verse 20. I quoted 18 and 19. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. See, when you start focusing on the Lord and you start understanding his love for you, you realize, man, I am radically loved by God. So much that he sent his son to die for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we realize the height, depth, width, length of God's love for us. It's like these problems that you go through, that you're, you, you face, and the challenge you face through life, they become far smaller. Why? Because you recognize that the creator of all things is in control. He's on the throne. That there's nothing that happens to us that doesn't get filtered through his permissive will. Okay? There's his will where he just establishes certain things that will create the heaven and the earth. No one's stopping. But then there's this permissive will. He lets certain things happen. But he lets them happen because he works all things together for the good for those who love him to the, the call according to his purpose. Amen? So everything goes to, that happens, happens by his permissive will that he allows to happen. He's in control ultimately of everything. But if he lets something happen, it's going to be for the good for those who love him. And then you recognize, wow, look at what it says. I mean, he says, now to him, this is praise, who is able to do far more abundantly, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power of that works within us. That's amazing. So all of a sudden we realize the problems that we face, we're going to be overcomers. We overwhelmingly conquer, it says, through Christ who loved us. Amen? We're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And that means you need to take your burdens to the Lord in prayer. You're going through some things, things you're facing right now. 
Remember Philippians 4? Listen to verse 4 of Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How could I always rejoice? Because of this. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's awesome, man. That means the Lord is going to take care of you. So the more you magnify the Lord in your life, the more the things that would give you anxiety, would freak you out, cause you to, you know, have heart problems, unnecessary heart problems that are related to stress, those things will disappear or they'll diminish greatly at least. So Luke chapter 1, verse 47 now, the very next verse. She says, And my spirit has rejoiced. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So now Mary is rejoicing in God her what? Her Savior. Roman Catholics need to see that verse. Okay? Because Roman Catholics teach that, you know, Mary is sinless. And she ultimately didn't need a Savior from sin because of the so-called immaculate conception. And that she was born sinless and she's sinless to this day. Uh, That's unscriptural. In fact, they make sort of a Savior out of her. But the scriptures tell us it's through Jesus' one act of righteousness that we're saved. Romans 1, 17, 18 says, For if because of one's, uh, one man's trespass, that's Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and f- the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So it's through Christ, one act of righteousness because he lived a perfect life right and he's the god man that he could pay for our sins and we'd be free of guilt yet the roman catholic church teaches that now the bible teaches that jesus is second adam the roman catholic church teaches that eve is or that mary is a second eve there's not a correspondence between adam and eve adam and eve were married okay jesus is not married to mary and they teach that eve in the garden uh, you know, brought the first Eve, brought sinfulness into the world through her one act of disobedience. And the new Eve, the supposed sinless Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, it is stated that she was sinless from conception and brought salvation by one act of righteousness in the world through her obedience. By the way, does anybody know what chapter and verse that is in the Bible? Where it says that? Yeah, you won't find it, bro. You could look from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Revelation chapter 22, the last couple of verses, and you won't find it anywhere there because she's been made like a goddess, you see. She's called the Queen of Heaven Church. Some of those churches called Queen of Heaven Church. By the way, in Jeremiah, God got down to the people because they worship the Queen of Heaven. They just use that same name. Some of Catholics look at her as a mediatrix that, she, you know, millions of Catholics pray to her. Mary can't hear their prayers. I, I say all the time, man, I just have a few kids and now i got about five grandkids, and I can't hear them all at once. And I'm alive, okay, and I'm here. And I, two, three, I come up, well, well, wait a second, you know, one at a time. But she's hearing millions at a time. It's mythology, and they're adding on to the Bible. And it's very, very sad, actually, what's happening there. The Catholic Catech- the Catechism of the Catholic Church, pages 490 through 494, 
they treat, quote, that the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception. It goes on to say that she was preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Well, your Bible says in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, for all have sin and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says, he that says without sin in 1 John 1.8 is a liar, the truth is not in him. If Mary claimed that, she'd be lying, and Mary would not claim that because she's a humble lady. In fact, Mary needed a Savior. She calls him God, her Savior. In fact, we're in Luke. It's easy to go to Luke. Go to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Luke 2, verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his, that is Jesus, his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, that's Joseph and Mary's purification, according to the law, she was under the law of Moses, was completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice Mary's offering a what? A sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. After a woman had had baby, and that's correct, that's in Leviticus, uh, in 5.11. If you had a baby, after your baby was born, you had to go for cleansing. And you had to offer, if you were poor, you could offer turtle doves for a purification. And... It's important to understand this because the Bible says the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, 11, amen. Our blood is tainted. It's sinful, amen. And when there's blood, it's, it's a picture of sin and this ceremonial cleansing through the sacrifice that would take place was for the purification, guys, of sin. How do you think, how do you know it's not just kind of just a ritual, it has nothing to do with sin? Well, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6 says this about this sacrifice. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, in this case, Jesus' son, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. There you go. Boom. Okay. So sin offering. Checkmate. Okay. Uh, and... Roman Catholics have exalted her. By the way, when you look at the history of Roman Catholicism, you'll see that they added all these different things on about Mary through the centuries. In fact, they now, since the 1800s, that's, almost, that's 1800 years after Christ, is when they accepted as church dogma the assumption of Mary that she ascended to heaven without dying as a sinless person. Wow. Do you know popes condemned that as heretical, that idea, and was never accepted? And then it was accepted in the 1800s. Just a little bit more time goes by, then they'll accept this, they'll accept that. That's why the Bible says test everything, hold fast to that which is good. Amen? So she calls the Lord her Savior. She offered up a sin offering, okay? And he is her Savior. And praise God, the, the Roman Catholic Mary is not the Mary of the Bible. The Roman Catholic Mary is not the Mary of the Bible, okay? She's not a mediatrix. The Bible says... 1 Timothy 2.5, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, many of them teach today, or the Roman Catholic Church teaches today as official doctrine, that she's perpetually a virgin. 
that she's still a virgin to this day. They call her the Virgin Mary, as though she's a virgin in the present tense. That, saw, that also goes along with just exalting her into a goddess-like being. And, and that, you know, takes a lot of its tone, I think, from, you know, in the early church period, the Gnostics really emphasized, uh, you know, not being together physically. Or depending on what kind of Gnostics you were. There were the Libertines among the Gnostics. And since they taught that the creator Yahweh was evil and everything he made is evil, the physical world, that way you could just have sex with anybody. You didn't have to follow any moral laws. There were the ascetics, on the other hand, that were Gnostics, and they said, well, the physical world's evil, therefore you don't want to copulate and be together physically and bring children into the world, you see? And a lot of them uh, emphasized virginity and so forth. Well, you can see in the Gnostic writings in the second, third century an emphasis on this, and guess what? That started to influence the church. Augustine was a Manichaean Gnostic for nine or ten years, depending on the histories you read about them, nine or ten years, and they had a strong emphasis on looking at sex as being a, uh, between a man and a woman, even in marriage, could, is you know, a sinful act in a way, and not the way we would understand sin. Augustine, as the primary theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, or I should say the most celebrated theologian, he's been canonized as a saint, brought in many false teachings, and he taught that, you know, emphasized that, you know, even when you're with your wife and you're not having a baby, that that's in some way sinful. That was a hangover from his Gnosticism. And the Roman Catholic Church to this day, well, by saying that she's still a virgin, somehow that means she's more godly, more uh, holy, you know, which is just so unscriptural. Uh, in fact, Augustine actually twisted the scripture. In Luke 1.24, he used this scripture to say that Mary was vowing perpetual virginity. If you look at 134 of Luke, in 134, what do we read? This is what Augustine stated. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a, a virgin? <laughs> and they said, oh, see, that was a declaration that she was, a, she was saying she's a perpetual virgin. No, she wasn't saying any such thing. What she's saying is she's answering, Gabriel, how could I be pregnant with a baby seeing that I know not a man? Amen. Because I'm a virgin. She was a virgin at that time. Wasn't a, and now Pope John Paul in his catechism in 1986 Pope John Paul II, used Augustine's argument and put it in his catechism in 1986, okay? So just lies that aren't in the scripture. And you can read any Bible commentary. You're not going to find any Bible commentary that's going to say that, okay? That I, unless it's a Roman Catholic Bible commentary based on trying to find some kind of proof. And I don't know if they, their commentators, they don't commentate too much on, have full-blown commentaries on scripture usually, but it's just kind of interesting. Now, it's just... Uh, this is not the context of what is going on there at all. And it, Mary being a perpetual virgin, that was ratified, became official dogma in the Roman Catholic Church in AD 451 uh, during the Council of Chalcedon. And uh, we read in the Roman Catholic teaching that it's not only doctrine, but it is right now. In fact, we read in the Roman Catholic teaching that Mary was taken to the temple when she was just three years old. And there at three years old on the temple steps, she made a vow to God that she was going to remain a virgin for the rest of her life. Now, I have a granddaughter that's four years old and she's clueless about those kinds of things and I hope she remains clueless about those things until she's 25, 30. And I allow her to marry someone with Chad and Holly's help, you know. Uh, but come on. 
I mean, at three years old, she understands what it means to remain a virgin the rest of her life. And, and by the way, what book, I'm trying to find out, what, I'm trying to remember, what book is that in of the Bible? Ah, it's not. It's a book, in the book of Second Opinions, chapter 2, verse 4, I think. Something like that, you know. Yeah, it's messed up. It's messed up. Now go to Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So she has, she has birth to her what son? Her secondborn son? Firstborn? Only son? Firstborn son. Why say firstborn son? Now, prototokos, the Greek word there, can mean uh, firstborn in the sense of preeminent, the one with the authority. It can mean that. I've got to be fair. Okay? It can mean that, and uh, it does mean that in different cases. Or it can also mean the first son. Well, we know that Jesus was her first son. No doubt about it. I believe it can speak, apply it to Jesus in both ways. But we certainly know the most natural way to take this when you read it is that he's her first son, guys. Meaning she had what? More she had more children. Come on. It's just common sense, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, monogenes is the uh, Greek word for only. If God, the Holy Spirit, wanted to emphasize that she was his only son, which she wasn't, he could have just simply used monogenes. Wife firstborn, if it's such an important doctrine, as Roman Catholics uh, claim to, you know, that it is. So that's all quite interesting. Now it's interesting. Now go to Matthew 118. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Before they came together. And the context is bearing children here. Okay. Now this is kind of interesting because this term came together, the Greek term there, is the same term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, telling husbands and wives that they belong to each other and they need to make sure that if they are going to withhold themselves from each other, it's with agreement through prayer and fasting, and then they come together again. Same Greek word. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together, same Greek word, and it implies sexual union, Right? Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because you lack self-control. It's very important uh, to, that husbands and wives have dialogue and talk and communicate about their sexual relationship with one another and that they're sensitive to each other and both are denying themselves to a degree and working together. Now, it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 1, I'll go to Matthew chapter 1. We looked at 118. They came together. But look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Verse 25, but kept her a virgin, what? Until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Come on now. They didn't come together until after she had her baby. He kept her a virgin until that time. Uh, he was the firstborn child. You just put all this together. It's pretty clear. Now, the New International Version says, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now, the English Standard Version, because I was looking at uh, the NASB is very, very literal usually. Uh, and the NIV is a little bit more, you know, less wooden, uh, which can be very helpful. But I like, a, 
I like a more wooden version that I can then do the work, you know, what's it mean? But I also like the versions that are readable, you know, so I like different translations. But the English Standard Version says, but it speaks of Joseph that he, uh, but knew her not. He didn't know her until she had given birth to a son. That's very literal, didn't know her because the Greek word is uh, egonoskin. Now, egonoskin, sounds familiar, sounds like gnosis, gnosko, epinosis or epigonosko. Uh, you have these different Greek words that are in the no language, right? Well, egonoskin, it literally says that he did not know her. So that's a literal translation. Until, okay, until she had given birth to a son. What's the implication there? He didn't know her until she gave birth to her son and until that time. And by the way, there's a few times where you have this negative, these same Greek words, the negatives, and every context in it, the New Testament, every other context actually begs and shows you that the negative comes, to a, comes at a certain point, the other side of it. So it's interesting. Egonoskin. And by the way, the King James Version has it. Now Adam, well, now Egonoskin, let's just explain this before I read a couple of these verses. Remember the Greek Septuagint. That's a Old Testament Greek translation that was around a couple centuries before Jesus was born. Okay? Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, use uh, some of the... Uh, it's interesting because the Septuagint trans translates to the Old Testament, that word agonoskin, right from the get-go, you can't see how it's used. It's used of, listen to this, because, well, how do you know knowing? Just, maybe it means he just was kind of afraid of her because Jesus was in her and he didn't want to talk to her. And it means he just didn't get to know her, you know, and didn't really hang out with her much. And then he just started talking to her afterwards. No, that would be pretty ridiculous, right, Israel? Well, we know that word akinoskin speaks of sexual intimacy, sexual relationship, because it's used in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived in Borkane. It's, uh, and... Now, the man had relations at Gnosis, and that's the NSB with his wife Eve. Genesis 4.17, Cain had relations at Gnosis with his wife, and she conceived. The New King James Version, and Cain knew Egonoskin, his wife. Genesis 4.25, this is all in Genesis chapter 4. Adam had relations at Gnosis with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For he, uh, she said, God has appointed me an, another offspring to replace uh, Abel, for Cain killed him. The new King James has, and Adam knew Egonoskin, his wife, again. So that word is used over and over again, three different times in Genesis chapter 4, of sexual union. And keep in mind, the New Testament quotes the Septuagint. Jesus did, apostles do, throughout the, you know, you read the New Testament. They're very familiar with the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. So they're very familiar with Egonoskin. They're used to seeing over and over again of sexual relations. So when it says he didn't agonoskin her until after Jesus was born, they understand that to mean sexual relations. The only reason you would try to steer away from all these verses I'm giving you is if you were trying to prove some kind of man-made dogma. You're not going to get this in Scripture. Where in Scripture does it say she was a perpetual virgin? And if you're visiting today, you're not familiar with Christianity. There's no book of second opinions that I mentioned earlier. I was just playing, okay? It's not there or any other book. So it's important to understand that. Now, another huge problem that Roman Catholics have is the scriptures very clearly over and over again speak of Jesus' brothers and sisters. Okay? In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46, you can go there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. 
It says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Now, it's interesting. They're seeking to speak to him. Uh, John 2.12, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. John 7.3, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. At this time, his brothers don't even believe him. He's the older brother. Oh, Jesus thinks he's perfect. Well, he was, right? It must, it must have been aggravating for them because of their sinful nature, not because he was so good, but because they were so bad. John 7, 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Acts 1, 14. All these, now they're at the day of Pentecost, his family, now his brothers believe. Uh, and he has sisters too, it mentions. Uh, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Do we not have the right, says Paul, to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles? Like Peter, right? As the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which is Peter. You know what he's saying there? Don't we have the right to take believing wives? Believing wives. Brothers and sisters, do not marry people that aren't in love with the Lord, that don't know Jesus. Amen? Now, if you're like, man, I'm already married to someone who don't love the Lord, then that's your mission field. Love them, be a witness to them, treat them in a wonderful way. Amen? And if you, but if, you, if you're a single, man, don't say, oh, I'm going to just do some missionary dating. It worked for this person. For every one person that missionary dating seems to, quote, unquote, work for, there's a hundred casualties or so, or a ton of, I don't know how many, but a ton of casualties where it doesn't work. and It backfires. I've seen it. I've seen it. I won't marry two people together unless they're both believers. And I've seen people feign it where you can't prove it, you know. And then it comes out later and it's just a mess, you know. So, but it's interesting. Don't we have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now the Roman Catholics say, well, maybe brothers right there. Some of them will say, well, maybe brothers there means, uh, you know, his cousins, like, or his relatives. Like, Paul's going to make that argument. Don't we have the right to take believing wives like some of Jesus' relatives? <laughs> That's just a ridiculous argument. Okay, it would be a weak argument if Paul was saying that. Galatians 1.19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, there was James. There was a couple of James, James that were called to be apostles of the Lord's common name back then. Jacob, right? Uh, but only one was pro uh, prominent where people would know exactly who they're talking about, who was prominent. And, uh, and the other one, and that was the brother of John, by the way. And there's another James. There's James the Apostle that we think of often. And there's another James, which is Jesus' brother. Okay? But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Okay? Now, Jesus' brothers are even mentioned by name. Listen to Matthew 15 or 13, 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Uh, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Gives her names. And by the way, Judas is like, he had a, was Judas one of his brothers? No, there's, Jude was a common name too, or Judas, okay? Uh, because keep in mind, at that time, Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus yet, so the name didn't become kind of, you know, it wasn't something you would 
we're worried about naming your kid back then because Judah was one of the sons of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then his sons, and father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus from the tribe of Judah, right? And so uh, Judas was one of the sons. In fact, when you look at the book of Jude, that is Judas, the book of Judas, but they didn't want to put Judas, you know, the book of Jude, you know. Turn to the book of Judas. Some good stuff in the book of Judas, you know. It'd be kind of like people that didn't know better, you know. So it's kind of interesting. You have this. And so James led the early church in Jerusalem. Now, in John chapter, early chapters of the book of Acts, okay, before you get halfway through the book, James, the apostle, is killed as a martyr, okay? But then when you look at John 15, even John, the latter part of John 12, John, I think, or Acts, I'm sorry, 12, Acts 15, the church council, James is the leader at the church in Jerusalem. Then you go to Acts 21 as well, you see James the leader in the church, and uh, he's the brother of the Lord. And it's interesting because uh, we read in Galatians, and that Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 1, check this out, verses 18 and 19. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained there with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That's in Galatians chapter 1. Paul's talking about James, the Lord's brother. That's the one that was pastoring the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 2.9, Paul writes, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. And we should, that we should go to the Gentiles and they, uh, uh, and they to be, and they to the circumcised, them to the Jews, circumcised. So it's quite, quite interesting when you think about this. So James, the apostle, dies pretty young. You have James, brother of the Lord, who's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's one of the pillars of the church, Paul says. In fact, when they, 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 they make the decision as to whether or not that Gentiles have to keep the law of Moses, they say, you know, why put a yoke on the Gentiles that our fathers themselves could not bear. And, and Peter gives his opinion, they give the opinions, but James is the one that seems to make the decision there. Kind of interesting. Now, uh, but I believe they collectively made it as well. But it's interesting, Jude 1.1, listen to this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, a couple of the names of Jesus' brothers were James, and Jude, or Judas. So when you're reading the book of Jude, it's written by one of Jesus' brothers. And he's humble and doesn't say, hey, I'm one of the sons of Jesus, or one of the brothers of Jesus, listen up. No, he's, just, he's a servant, he's being humble, but he's saying, hey, I'm James' brother. And the James that would be predominant at that time in their consciousness would not be the one who had died, the apostle, because we read he had a brother named John, but not Jude, but we read that Jude and James are Jesus' brothers. So this is all over the scripture. Okay, it's all over the scripture. Adam Clark, uh, he's an older, you know, he's not, I mean, he'd be really old if he was alive now, but he was in the, you know, 1700s and early 1800s, and he was a Wesleyan theologian. In fact, John Wesley invited him to go to a seminary, uh, one of the seminaries he set up, and he became quite the scholar in a lot of ways, and he was a companion of Wesley's and a commentator. In fact, his commentaries are free online, uh, and Listen to what he says about this passage where it talks about, you know, uh, where we just looked at in chapter 13. Remember, they're saying, didn't we just grow up? We didn't we grow up with his brothers and stuff? This Jesus, you know, who is he? Basically, listen to what he says about the Catholic idea that, you know, well, these were just not, they were just like, you know, 
cousins or some Catholics will say that, well, this was Joseph's children from the first marriage. That's in Second Opinions chapter 2. There's no first marriage we read about in the Bible. But they're trying to, get, they're trying to make stuff up and they don't have the scriptures to support it. So they come out with all these Atlantis thoughts. Listen to what Adam Clark wrote. It is possible that brethren and sisters may mean here near relations as the words are used among the Hebrews in the latitude of meaning, but I confess it does not appear to me likely. Why should the children of another family be brought in here to share reproach, which is evident that was designed for Joseph the carpenter, marry his wife, Jesus their son, and their other children? It's like all the relatives just show up, you know, in this uh, prejudice apart, prejudice apart. Uh, would, would not any person of plain common sense suppose from this account that these words were the ch- or that these were the children of Joseph and Mary, and the brothers and sisters of our Lord according to the flesh? It seems odd that this should be doubted, but though, uh, but uh, through an unaccountable prejudice, Papists and Protestants, Papists and Protestants are determined to maintain a doctrine that on which the scriptures are totally silent, the perpetual virginity of the mother of our Lord. I would only disagree with that last part. The scriptures are not silent on it. The scriptures are clear on it, right? And he says Papists, being the Roman Catholic Church, because how they venerate Mary. And, they, but, and he also says Protestants, because Martin Luther, John Calvin, and even Wesley all thought that she was perpetually a virgin. That was a hangover from Roman Catholicism. But Adam Clark who's contemporary Wesley, says, he's trying to be kind and irenic about it, but he's like, that doesn't look scriptural, guys. Right? So it's interesting. So like, like I said, the Catholics will say, hey, you know, a lot of it, it's his cousins. And because that term brothers, uh, in, if you look at the Greek language for brothers there and, and so forth, it can mean distant relatives as well. But guess what? The term in the New Testament, brothers, is never used of cousins anywhere. And also, I think this is important. I love this one. This is, here's another checkmate on another subject, here we, on the same subject. But, uh, and by the way, Paul uses the word cousin, okay? In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, the Lord could have used that particular Greek word. It's not used, okay? The word Delphos is used. And, uh, and also, it speaks of his sisters, which is the feminine of that word. But go to Psalm chapter 69, verse 8. Just one verse, or you can look it up, or you can listen. Because right here, I think it's really, really powerful. It's a messianic psalm about the coming of the Lord Jesus. You familiar with that one, Israel? Pretty awesome. He says, I have become estranged from my brothers. Okay? I have become estranged from my brothers. And in the Septuagint, it's the same Greek word, Adelphos. So I have become estranged from my brothers. Well, what does that prove? They could just say cousins. No, they can't. Because let's what the next part says. And an alien from my mother's sons. Checkmate. There it is again. And an alien to my mother's sons. In other words, his brothers are not, you know, Elizabeth's children, you know. He's got a cousin named John, but they're his mother's sons, okay? Mary's sons. Because, well, you know, Joseph didn't come together to be with her until after she had her first born son and, and then it kept her a virgin until that time. We read all that, right? And then we read his brothers. You know, it's pretty clear uh, in the scripture. Now, uh, therefore, it can't refer to that. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Well, that also rules out that they're Joseph's 
from a previous marriage, you know? So that just, you know, destroys all those weird ideas, you know? Uh, now, let's go to chapter 1, verse 48. Well, by the way, the reason I emphasize this to a degree is because it's being emphasized on one of the biggest religions on the planet, and it's a huge deception. The Roman Catholic Church is off in so many areas. And every once in a while, you'll see the so-called Protestant come go back to Rome. You know, it's out of the, out of the you know, pit back to the vomit, you know. And you need to recognize it's, it's, it's based on a lot of mythology, a lot of lies that are not from, from the Lord. And Mary is, praise God. You know, we praise the Lord for, for what the Lord did in Mary's life. Amen. She, she'll, she's blessed. She's favored one, no doubt, because God chose her. So we praise the Lord. But we have to be careful because the Lord said this would be a sign that a virgin would be with child. Amen. It's the child. We praise God that she's blessed and she's favored and we'll, we'll be tripping out. Like, she's an awesome lady. Amen. But man, now that the son is born, our focus is ultimately on Jesus. Amen. Right? You go down the road. You're all hungry. You're coming back from being out of town. For, you're all starving. You're like, man, you got caught in traffic. You're really hungry. And, and all the kids see a McDonald's sign. Let's go to McDonald's. Well, there's a sign. McDonald's. But you don't go to McDonald's and then stare and just look at the sign for the next hour. You go eat, you go eat the Big Mac or whatever, right? You go eat at McDonald's. Amen. Well, guess what? Mary's the sign. Amen. But guess what? Something better than a cheeseburger or a Big Mac or a quarter pounder has come. His name is Jesus, and we focus on him. He's the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 1, verse 48 now. Luke 1, 48. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She calls herself his bond slave. I love that. For behold, from this time on, and all generations will count me blessed. Amen. We say she is blessed, and that's awesome. And uh, we, So the thing is, we've got to be really careful because people can start making jokes about Mary and disparaging her. It's not fair to her that the Roman Catholics do this. Amen? So we still want to say praise God for Mary. She's an awesome woman of God and a great example in so many ways. Look at she was young and she knew the scripture. She was a humble lady uh, before the Lord. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, she is blessed. The Bible says, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Amen? We have to be poor in spirit. We have to be humble before the Lord if we're going to be blessed. Amen? God gives grace to the humble, but he what? He resists the proud. He resists the proud. Amen. Gives grace to the humble. Man, we've got to bow the knee before him, man. But he resists the proud. Verse 49. For the mighty one, I love that, she calls the Lord God the mighty one, has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Now this woman... Look what she's doing. She exalts. She starts by exalting him, right? Magnifying him. She says, holy is his name. That should be coming out of our mouths, man. You guys need to be magnifying the Lord as holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That he's pure. He's perfect. He's not just holy in the sense that he's sinless. That's true. But he's, as we say, ontologically holy. He's in a class of his own. Amen. He's the uncreated creator of all things. Creator of heaven and the, heaven and the earth. And just look at the, the beauty of his creation and be in awe of him. And declare holy his name. She calls him the mighty one. I think that's interesting. Because who is in her? It's Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. And we're told in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah chapter 9, right? He'd be called not only Emmanuel, but he'd be called mighty God. She's burying him. 
And I don't think she understands all the implications of what's going on here. That's why she pondered these things. Verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Wow. Aren't you glad it just didn't say his mercy is upon this present generation only? Boom. We'd be in trouble, man. But his mercy is so rich. It goes from generation to generation. Even though we live now in a very wicked generation, even in the first century, Jesus says to the Jews that they're a wicked, adulterous generation. And that was a characterization, not of, that was a characterization way back to Deuteronomy where the Lord, where the Lord said Moses talked about how they'd become stiff-necked. And that was a characteristic of humans who were given God's light and rejected it. But God has a plan, amen, and, and knew that they would continue to reject him until they say, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, then they'll see him whom they pierced. But his mercies are upon all generations. Now notice what it says at the end, toward those who what? Toward those who fear him. A lot of people out there wanting God's mercy in the end, but they don't fear God at all, man. They have hard hearts. Earlier today, and I worked hard on this message most of the day today, but I take a couple breaks to check out what's going on in the world, and I saw this thing where this guy had uh, just uh, killed, I think, a 97-year-old, a 93-year-old lady, and he got off because the judge was having a, even though he was convicted, now he got off because the judge was having a sexual relationship with the prosecutor. Therefore, they threw it out. And I'm like, you know what? And he might think, wow, God's had mercy on me. No, man. God has mercy. You got off, dude. You better repent. And God has mercy on those who fear him. Doesn't have mercy on the proud and arrogant. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Amen. And the Bible says he makes his covenant known to those who fear him. What's the covenant he made known to us? Jesus Christ, the new covenant. John 7, 17, Jesus said the Father, it's the Father's will. He said that, well, he says that the, uh, in John chapter 7, verse 17, he said, all who will to do the will of the Father will know the doctrine. It's when you want to do the Father's will that you're like, man, I'm messed up. I deserve judgment. And you fear the Lord. He makes his covenant known to those who fear him. Look at Cornelius, remember? Cornelius feared the Lord. He didn't know him. God moved heaven and earth, literally, man, visions and angels, and brought Peter and Cornelius together and gave them the gospel. Why? Because the fear of the Lord be, be, leads to wisdom. And he says he makes his covenant known to those who fear him. And he confides in them. His eyes go to and fro throughout the earth looking for those who he can strengthen. Who, and that's got to be us, guys. You want to make sure you fear him, you love him, that you're not arrogant, you're not proud. You don't just say, hey, I'm going to do my own thing. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12 says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's mercy, guys. Verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That is not just an Old Testament doctrine. Here's Mary, fearing God. And she's turned, I don't know if you've noticed, she's turned from praising God, from choosing her to carry the Messiah, to now uh, speaking and rejoicing in his, his uh, revelation and how he deals with humanity in general. Luke chapter 1, verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. This is very interesting to me. This stunned me when I read this. 
because I was really, you know, trying to meditate on this and looking at it. And, and I was like, wow, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. Because I tried to think of this in terms of what she's going through. And she knows the Old Testament scripture. In fact, if you look at Hannah and her prayer, there's some similarities. You could tell that she looked at these other sisters in the Old Testament as examples to her. And sisters, and not just sisters, brothers, all of us need to say, look at the heart that she has. It's awesome. But look what she says here. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. You can be really proud and not do proud things. You can just be full of pride and just be docile as a person. But you're in trouble with God because you're just arrogant within. It's like some kids, when they're getting disciplined, they'll sit down finally, but they're standing up on the inside. You know? They just don't want to get disciplined. And we have to make sure that we're bowed down in our hearts or we'll be scattered. And that, the idea there is like, you know, crumbs being pushed away. You know, we're just, God's enemies are like crumbs, you know. It's easy to deal with them. And it's interesting, it says... He has done mighty deeds with his arm. You know what? When I read Isaiah 53, there's something really interesting there. That's, that, I, that, I, that when you're witnessing the Jews, it's a great thing to use. Because when you show Isaiah 53, it's that probably the most clear, I believe the most clear, radical, messianic uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. It's quoted. I believe the Holy Spirit feels that way too because it's quoted in the New Testament more than any other part of the Old Testament. Over and over and over and over again. I remember when I did a study on Isaiah 53, and I thought, I'm going to go to all the Old Test- New Testament usages of it. I was like, wow, Lord, it's everywhere. Just little pieces of it, too. And it's interesting because one of the things that the Jews will say as you're reading it, they'll say, well, the servant there is, is Israel. Well, it makes no sense. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the nakedness of us all upon him, right? That makes no sense at all. And he was cut off from the land of the living, and it says he bore our sins. He died for our transgressions. That makes no sense at all. And what you'd have to say, because this is a righteous servant. Israel was not righteous. In fact, go to Isaiah chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. But from the, from, the head, uh, from the head down to the toe, it talks about how they're full of sin. So much so that listen to what the Lord says in chapter 59, verse 16. And he saw that there was no man. He's looking for someone who can intercede. Someone who can, a righteous man who can stand up and declare God's righteousness and stand up for the people and stand in the gap. But he says, he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. So he couldn't find anybody in Israel, not the nation and not the people. He could find one of them. No one to intercede. Then his, listen to this, then his own arm brought salvation to him. Yep. Ooh, his own arm brings salvation to him. Now, tie this with Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Lord brings salvation. Yahweh is the Messiah in Isaiah 53. He's the only one who is perfect. There's none righteous, no, not one but him. Amen? I love that. And it just dawned on me one day, as I was looking at the arm, I go, ooh, he can't find anyone, but that arm connection is really awesome. Now you put that with Mary's prayer, and she talks about the arm of the Lord has done mighty things. Well, what's the most mighty thing that the Lord's done? Create the heavens and the earth, I would think. Second most awesome thing. First most is our redemption in Christ. It took six days to create the heavens and the earth, man. Right? The work of redemption, prophets, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, Right? Boom, then Messiah dies 
for our, our sins after, you know, 4,000 years or a bit more. Quite amazing. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And that he has exalted those who were humble. Again, God gives grace to the humble, judgment to the proud. He resists the proud, but you can also say judgment to the proud. When you're witnessing, you say, hey, God gives grace to the humble, man. Brings judgment to the proud. People need to have the fear of the Lord, so they need to realize they need to turn to Jesus and be forgiven of their sins. We need to shoot straight with people when we're witnessing to them. Now, it's interesting. He has brought down rulers. Read, read Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, right? That whole deal. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Wow. He's filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty-handed. Wow. Remember that old story? You ever read the Dr. Seuss books when you were a kid? Dr. Seuss is the Grinch who stole Christmas. And he was this kind of evil dude, you know, who, you know, stole all the decorations and everything. Remember that? And the way, the way that Seuss puts it, he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore because he was stealing his Christmas decoration stuff. And then he was so puzzled that people were singing and having a good time and singing carols and stuff. He puzzled and puzzled until his puzzler was sore. Then Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little a bit more. And what happened? Well, in Woville, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then the true meaning of Christmas came through. And the Grinch found he, his strength. And ten Grinches plus two. So he just was felled so much. Well, I'm not sure what kind of Christmas he was experiencing but I know if you experience the true Christmas, man, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. You'll be filled with the fullness of God as you magnify the Lord. The last couple of verses, verses 54 and 55. He, was given help, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. This is Mary's prayer, her Magnificat. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. He was going to bring, see, Israel was supposed to be the servant of the Lord a light to the Gentiles, but she blew it, right? She went into Egypt, was enslaved there to teach her, came out of Egypt. Jesus traces her steps. He goes into Egypt, he comes out of Egypt. He's called the firstborn because she couldn't do it. So he identifies with her and he dies in her place. And what's the trip here is he brings help to Israel and remembers his mercy. Then verse 55, and he spoke to our fathers, this is interesting, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. I was looking at that. I was like, hmm. He brings mercy how? As he spoke to our fathers. What kind of mercy did he promise the fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever? Listen to Genesis 22, 17, 18. Now catch this. It gets a little, little complex, but it's, you can follow it. I will surely, this is easy to understand, but I will surely bless you and I will multiply your descendants, God says, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies. And th through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The context, because I started thinking about well, what were the promises to Abraham that might relate to her? And I thought about 
this passage because, and this is a blow mine. All the nations, all, you know, Abraham's going to have many descendants like the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. And that's more than the Jews. There's about 10 million or so Jews. That's a lot, but that's not like the stars of the sky and sand of the sea. That's a lot. But, and, and there's Jewish believers. But guess what? He makes that promise right after he says this in verse 16. Saying, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your only son. God makes that promise to Abraham because he passed the test and he has not done what? Withheld his what? Only son. Because you haven't withheld your only son, I have covenant with you. All the, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. Put it together. Mary is praising God because of the descendants of Abraham and God having mercy upon her. And mercy, Emmanuel, God with us, is in her womb. Okay? Abraham was told not to give his son, but first it was a whole picture of Jesus. In fact, even a supernatural birth because Sarah was 90 years old could not have a baby. God wants to show, when I bring my son, I'm going to bring a supernatural birth. And he brings Isaac into the world through her. Takes a three-day, a three-night trip. Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights, right? Takes him up the mount, Abraham does. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Wasn't his only son? Well, he was by promise. Amen. Jesus says, this is my son. A father says of Jesus, this is my son, whom I am what? Well pleased. First time you find love in the Old Testament is take this Take your son, your only son, whom you love. First time you find in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 3. This is my son whom I love. The parallels are undeniable. It's a whole picture. what I call the first passion play. I called it that years ago when I first preached on this. It's the first passion play. 2,000 years before it happens. And he stays at hand. says, don't kill him. By the way, Isaac takes the wood up on his back up the mount. That's what Jesus took the wood, right, until he collapsed. And he took it up the same mount, Mount Moriah. Same mountain, same place, 2,000 years early. It's just a mind blow. But check this out. When you think about it, because God didn't withhold his only son is why we can all be blessed and become children of Abraham and be saved. Amen? And it's quite amazing. In fact, uh, Genesis 21.12 says, For in Isaac your seed shall be called. What do you mean, in Isaac your seed shall be called? Seeds aren't called. Seeds are, pro you know, are generated from relations. That's because he's not talking about physical birth here, ultimately. I mean, there's going to be a physical seed that will come, Messiah, but the seed will be called. Who's the seed that's called? Christ. Whosoever will come, maybe come part. Because Christ was the finality. He was the termination point of the seed. Amen. And he was the one that died for the sins of the world. Amen. So the Bible now says in Galatians chapter 3, verse, or verse 29, And if you are Christ... Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because Galatians 3.16 says, Now Abraham, the promises were spoken to Abraham, Paul says, and to his seed. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. So when you look at the context, a seed is one and it's plural. And what you notice is you'll notice that a seed also contains what? Can contain many, Right? So I believe there's a plurality and there's a singular deal going on. In fact, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit, amen? When Jesus dies on the cross, he pays for the sins of the world. 
is that everybody who comes to him can become the seed of Abraham. And then we read in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, meaning you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Wow. Wow. Now, I'm going to close with a couple things I want to really encourage you in. Isn't it amazing? I mean, think about this now. It's going to take me two minutes. Think about this. If I, if I take two, if I get done in two minutes, then I'll be five minutes early. I owe so many minutes, so we'll, we'll try three maybe, and still be four minutes early. Think about this, guys. Think about how blessed Mary is to have born the Messiah, have the Messiah living in her. Emmanuel, God with us in her. You know what it says of Mary? It speaks of her being as especially blessed, and also it calls her another place the favored one. Okay, listen to this. She's blessed among women. Luke, four, Luke 1, 48, earlier than when we picked it up. For he has regard for the humble, your humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time to all generations will count me blessed. Now we did read that, count me blessed. Okay, guess what? That same Greek word for blessed right there is used of you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that same Greek word, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Wow. Okay. Eulageo uh, uh, is the Greek word there. Eulageo. And it's the same word that's used for Mary being blessed. But you know what trips me out? Is earlier in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, look at what it says of Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings. The angel says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Wow. She's called the favored one. And the Greek word there is karatao, okay, karatao. And that Greek word favored one, karatao, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Ephesians 1, 6. And I'll just read 5 and 6. He predestined us, that's you and me. It's used of you, of us. He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. And it's translated there, freely bestowed, kartao. Okay? In the beloved. We're, 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 free, we're blessed in Christ, in the beloved, kartao. Now, I remember that Greek word because I think of what a blessing it would be. You're in a car and you're going to Tahoe. Okay? Kartao. Tahoe's beautiful this time of year. I've been up here this time of year. The international version translates this way. So that we would be praised We'd be praised, I'm sorry, so that we would praise his glory. So we'd praise his glorious grace that he gave us in the beloved one. Okay, and right there it's, it's glorious grace. It's translated glorious grace. The Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible, which I think is a really good translation in many ways, it says the praise of his glorious grace. So it's translated that we're recipients of his glorious grace and that he favored us with in the beloved. So I'm sorry, the glorious grace and favored us with, favored us with, favored is the one that's from Kartato there, okay? The Amplified Version says, to the praise of his glorious grace and favor, which he freely bestowed on us in his beloved, okay? So brothers and sisters, you are wonderfully blessed. You are blessed like Mary's blessed. She's blessed among women. She stands out because of what God's done with her because she was able to bear the Messiah, but you're blessed as well in Christ, amen? She, but she's the favored one. You are karatao. You are, the, you are favored in Christ, amen? 
in the beloved. That's if you are in Jesus right now, if you're trusting Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, robed in his righteousness. Yeah, but still, she bore the Messiah. He lived in her. Are you a Christian? Jesus lives in you. Amen. Emmanuel, God with us. He said he'd make his home, he and the Father, in our hearts. Amen. He lives in you today. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Amen. Magnify the Lord, and then your problems will become very manageable because the Lord, you'll recognize, he only allows things to come to my life that he's sovereignly allowed by his divine power for his, div- for his glory and for my good, if I love him according to the purpose of which I've been called. Amen. Let's bow our hearts before the Father.